Welcome to this message from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon. City Bible Church is a vibrant community of people with one common desire to experience God, enjoy people, and celebrate life. We're talking about worship. This is actually the last message on worship. Even though I'd like to go about another four or five weeks, we just have to kind of balance out our teaching and preaching as we... Uh, move the church into what God has for that moment. And I believe that the last four weekends were very important to talk about. One of the things that we do all the time, and that is worship God. Remember, worship, I understand that worship is a 24-7 thing, not just a service. A person can be in a service and go through the actions of worship and not have their life aligned to Jesus at all. Not living for Jesus, not talking to Jesus, not loving Jesus, not loving people, not living the Christian life, doing things on the side, doing things that are absolutely unbiblical in their life, and still come in the church, clap their hands, lift their hands, maybe even sing their praise and carry on. And sometimes a spiritual person might not be the most demonstrative person in the church, might not be the person that's really shouting and praising and shaking and carrying on, because they uh, just sometimes... That's all they're doing is just what is happening right there in that service. That's it for them. It doesn't carry over. Now, one of the things that happened, I think, in uh, charismatic, Pentecostal, spirit-filled, whatever flavor you want to call people that believe in the Holy Spirit, move in the anointing of God and believe in worship and gifts of the Holy Spirit and all this, one of the things that happened is there is a great departure between spiritual truth that those things that were dynamic and those things that were livable every day that should be lived out in your life. Worship is when your life gives glory to God. In every area of your life, as a parent, as a spouse, as a worker, as a friend, as a person who's just living for Jesus, every person worships 24-7 with who you are before God. When you come into the sanctuary, you're bringing who you are. You're not bringing an act, a demonstration. You're not bringing some kind of a learned culture that we just want you to clap and sing and lift hands and go through the motions. Then we would say, hey, we had one powerful worship service because everyone was clapping and singing and lifting their hands. Praise God, we have a very spiritual church. That would miss the mark by a million miles. Worship is when your heart and your life, your words, your actions are aligned with Jesus. And when you bring yourself into the corporate gathering, what you bring is the reality of your relationship to God. And that reality is what worships well. Can I hear an amen? It's that reality. It's not a disconnect. It's a connecting and a breathing of your spiritual man with the rest of the body of Christ on the Lord's day or whatever day we have a service on, and as you worship the Lord, your reality, the depth of who you are, comes forth. That's why I keep saying over and over again, worship comes out of your well. It's not some kind of a trick or some kind of a learned thing or some kind of a, you know, that we're just going to make everybody dynamic worshipers, and this is, if you do these things, you'll be dynamic. It starts with the heart. And if it's not in the heart, it ain't in the hands. It's not in the feet, and it's not in the mouth. It's not in the volume. It's not in the instrument. 
It starts with the heart. When the heart's right, worship can seem kind of pitiful to man. And you might look at that and think, that's not a very good worship person, but what's going on in their heart, how they're bringing their sacrifice to God is totally pleasing to the Lord. Because he sees what that person is bringing in their brokenness or in their strength or in the faith of the life they're going through right now. They bring their faith to God and God receives them right where they are. Because I didn't have time in this series to really define that as well as I normally would when I would go into a worship series is to definitely do a lot more on the heart, a lot more on your relationship, a lot more on where worship comes out of. But I didn't have uh, the time to really do that. So I just want to augment it again to make sure you hear me say it and you understand. I understand that. Now, when the heart is right, when there is a uh, passion for Jesus and there's a uh, desire to worship God, the things that you do in worship does matter to God or they wouldn't be in the Bible. When God says, lift your hands, it must be important to him that you can, according to Lamentations chapter 3, lift your heart with your hand. It must be something that's very important to God that we loosen from the day that we're coming out of or from the problems we're in and lift our heart to God. There's something in that that allows you to focus on the Lord. And how you sing your psalms and your hymns and your spiritual songs becomes a very, very important factor. Now, the bottom line, the bottom line, the bottom line for church is the presence of Jesus in the house. That's the bottom line. In business, it's profit. In sports, it's winning. Politics, it's votes. In church, it's presence. Not buses, it's not budgets, not buildings, it's not all the stuff you see. The number one issue when it comes to Christ and his church is, is he in the house? That's number one. Churches in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, if you don't straighten up, I will come and remove my candlestick from your house. That is my presence. The bottom line for us, well, for you and me personally and corporately, is that Jesus is in the house. And that the presence of God flows freely in the house. Wherever the presence of God is, things happen. Moses in Exodus 33, when they were going to go up and, and God told him, I'll send an angel. This is in your Bible, Exodus 33. And God explains to Moses how they're going to go up with power and angels are going to guard him and this is going to happen. Moses said, time out. No, won't do it. God says, excuse me, Moses, what was that? No. The answer is no. Unless your presence goes with me, I ain't going. Now Moses learned something with the burning bush. Moses learned something when God visited him in his tent, which is in the Bible. Moses learned something about God, and Joshua caught on to it because Joshua wouldn't even leave the tabernacle. He would just stay there as long as he could, bathe in the presence of God. Moses tasted of the presence of God. And so he understood to say to God, no, if, if you don't send your presence with us, we're not going anywhere. It's your presence 
that drives this nation. It's nothing else. I don't want an angel. I don't want just supernatural manifestations. I want you, and I want your presence. God says, okay. Maybe God was testing the man, huh? Because God said, okay, I'll go with you. Presence of God is in layers. There's the sovereign presence of God, the omni presence of God. Omni presence means God's everywhere. God is not just in church today. God is in the bar. God is in the game. God is in the mall. God is, God's everywhere. You can't shut God out. It might not mean that they feel God, recognize God, or do anything about it, but God, omnipresent, even when Psalms 139 was written, and he says, if I make my bed in hell, you're there. God's everywhere. You can't shut him out. The omnipresence. But then there's also what we would call the manifested presence of God. The manifested presence of God is when God chooses to manifest himself, which is his character, in a manifested way, feeling his attributes in a tangible way. His manifested presence was on the altars, right through the Bible, in the most holy place, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the tabernacle of David, manifested in a specific place, at a specific time, with a specific group of people that felt that manifested presence so powerfully that it did something to them. That's what we would call revival, where God manifests sovereignly his presence. It happens all over. Where there's places. During one of the revivals of America, when the ships came within a certain mileage from the Sure, this is history. They would pull in to that particular zone as ships and everyone would start falling on their face and repenting and crying out and men would cut themselves because they were so sinful and didn't know what to do and, and some people would just lay out on the deck. These are, these are drunkards. These are hardcore men. These are men that maybe were not seeking God whatsoever, but they came into a zone. And as they came into that zone, the manifested presence of God rocked their world. They did not know what to do with it because of that powerful manifested presence of God. I remember my first encounter with the manifested presence of God. And it was a rock your world experience. Now God was always there, but he manifested himself in a way that his presence permeated my world. Then there's another level that you could call the felt personalized presence of God. The felt personalized presence is not just the omni, it's not just the manifesto, but it's, it's that presence you feel when you get into a real spirit of prayer. That presence of God just comes in your being, your soul, then maybe the room you're in, and maybe the car, and maybe at that point you feel to intercede more intensely or more specifically, or maybe you begin to just sing and praise, or maybe you shed some tears, or you laugh, or you sing, but you know that the manifested presence of God has now become a personalized presence for you. 
And that personalized presence makes you hungry for more of the manifested presence. And that manifested presence makes you understand God is powerful and God can do many, many things in your life when the presence of God is manifested. Psalm 1611 says, uh, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence. Psalm 51 says, in your presence there's cleansing. And you can heal my brokenness. Psalms 119 says, in your presence, your word comes alive to me. In your presence, the Bible says, mountains melt, rocks are broken, hearts are healed, joy is released, minds are renewed. In the presence of God, dreams come to life again. Visions are seen. Why are we so hungry for the presence of God? It's because it's the bottom line. It's why we exist. It's, it's, it's who we are. It's not just going through the motions of church. Not just going through the motions of singing. Not just all of it heads toward one thing. Oh God, I'm hungry for your presence. In a dry and thirsty land, Lord, you need to be that great rock that will give me the shadow and life that I need. Lord, in the heat of the day, I need the refuge of your presence. Psalm 91, for in your presence, what? There's protection. And God begins to do things that doesn't happen outside the presence. Remember what David said in Psalm 51. It must be something about how he felt because he said, don't cast me away from your presence. Now, you can't cast David from the omnipresence. No matter where you cast him, God's there. David had right to go into the tabernacle. He was still going. But I think he's talking about that felt personalized walking in presence of God where your heart's pure and your life is on track and you're doing prayer and devotions and loving Jesus and your prayer time is a revealing of God's presence in your life and things are going on in you that just feels like a river is flowing and life is coming and there's joy. Joy is a sign of his presence. So when we worship, we're not just worshiping because we should. We're worshiping because we want to. Big difference. We're not just worshiping because we're in church. We're worshiping because we're hungry for God. And that's why a stretching out of your hands and your heart is a sign of hunger. It's a sign of thirst. It's a sign of, I want God in my world. And I want to love him right now and just lift him up. It's a sign. Worship, very important to us, our leadership, every part about us. Now, I define true worshipers as a person who pours your praise and worship to God, okay? We, we do that when we understand presence. With abandonment and joy, completed, compelled by a genuine heart full of passion and devotion. True worship, and again, if the heart's in it, these things are easy. Standing, clapping, shouting, singing, kneeling, rejoicing, lifting, singing a song of praise. Any one of those is easy. When your heart's on fire. Now the Bible says the dead 
praise not the Lord. Well, spiritually, when you're dead, none of those things will rock you because nothing in you to do it. The Bible says, lift up the hands that hang down. Uses the idea of a willow tree. So obviously, you can be melted in life. You can be wilted. You can be letting your hands hang down. You know, in the New Testament, talks about hands hanging down as a sign of discouragement. And so when you're discouraged, and when you're like a willow tree, and it says, take your harp off the willow tree, and come into the house of the Lord. There, there's a significance there that speaks about the human heart and the spiritual part of you where sometimes you do get beat down. I get beat down, you get beat down, we all get beat down. That's what the devil does. That's what his little army does. That's what life does. That's what our culture does. That's what the world does. We get beat up. We get beat down. We get discouraged with life and, and relationships and finance and, and physical things and just our own failures and things that don't make sense to us and the mysteries of life and the disappointments of life that, that you had nothing to do with, but it's a huge disappointment for you because of what that person did. It's a disappointment. You can't really control disappointments. You have to respond and react to them. And so when you get into life, there's a lot of stuff, whether you're Christian, non-Christian, half-Christian, half-baked, fully-baked, wherever you are. You come sometimes, beat down, pulled down like a willow tree. And that's where faith comes in, where these things about singing and lifting, where faith comes in, is where you go beyond your emotion and your feelings and lift up the name of God. And you just think of yourself as the willow tree. Say, you know what? I'm taking these hands that are hanging down. And I'm going to lift them up in the name of the Lord. Well, that takes a certain attitude. A worship in these words that we, we normally do in our services at one point or another. We, we sing a personal song of praise. Again, the personal song of praise is a song given to you that no one else has. The personal song of praise is something that is birthed in you because you're singing about where you are. You're singing about what you believe. You're singing about how you have faith for. You're bringing your worship out of your well. The song of praise is personal. True worship is what? Encountering the living, powerful Changing presence of God. Bottom line. Now, I'd like you to write this definition down or concept of the presence of God. Just write it in your Bible if you don't have notes. But the presence of God fills up, permeates, overspreads every worshiping soul with freshness of spirit, strength, and renewal. The presence of God fills up, permeates, overspreads every worshiping soul. It's your promise. That's how you enter the church service. That's what you say when you come through the doors. That's, that's your faith element. That's, that's how you, you move yourself into the worship service and saying, Lord, I believe as my soul worships, there's freshness, freshness waiting for me right now. There's, there's freshness in that service. By faith, we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Worship is an act of faith. It's an act of of obedience with faith. But faith is a part of this. Say, Lord, I believe there's strength waiting for me in that service. Lord, you know what? 
I believe there's renewal waiting for me in that service. It's amazing. The attitude you come with determines the depth you go out with. It's amazing how it works. The attitude you come in with determines the depth of what you go out with. You can come in with unbelief, go out with unbelief, be untouched by the presence of God, and nothing has changed except you've wasted in a sense, maybe never waste when you come to church, but you certainly haven't played it to the full 90 minutes of your life where if you come in and do not activate, do not allow yourself to lift up those willow branches that are hanging down. You know, the Bible is so clear about this, and, and it's you know, the basic scriptures are always my favorite because the Bible says the thief comes to steal. What he can't steal, he destroys. He mangles so you can't use it. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. What? Your joy. One of the greatest earmarks and the greatest pleasures of living is joy. Being able to laugh and have a smile and have a flow and have an attitude and have some faith about where you're going and what you're doing and just feeling good about life. It's just a, a flow in you. The joy of the Lord is my strength. It says in the Bible, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Well, if the joy of the Lord is my strength, don't you know that's where the devil's going to come in and try to take your joy all the time? Why? Because he knows that's where you get strong. It's where you have joy. When you come to church, you take this definition and you make it work for you. Say, Lord, whatever I'm bringing in, I'm leaving and I'm trading and exchanging and I'm going out differently. Then worship becomes a focus for you. Not just following the screens and listening to the band, but you're coming to meet with God. You're coming to hear from the Lord. You're coming to be refreshed by the Holy Spirit. Can I hear an amen? amen? All right, lifting of hands. Would you write down a couple of things about lifting of hands? Just make sure you have this. And again, if you write this in your Bible next to Psalms 143, it might be a great place to put it. Psalms 143. And then just write down these one-liners I'm going to give you. Psalms 143 verse 6 says, I spread out my hands to you. Psalms 143. My soul longs like a person in a thirsty land. Well, these are words to describe. Psalms 143, here's another one. Psalms 134 says, lift up your hands in the sanctuary. Well, it's biblical. Psalm 63 in verse 4, it says, I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands. What happens when you lift hands? without me going into a total teaching on this, and you can put it next to Psalms 143 and remind yourself when I spread my hands and I come out of my thirsty land in Psalms 134 into the sanctuary, what happens when I spread my hands? Number one, lifting the hands has a spiritual significance. And that spiritual significance happens when your spirit activates things in the realm of faith, so the lifting of hands is not just natural arms and hands. There's a spiritual significance. Just like words have significance, kneeling has significance. There's a spiritual significance to lifting of hands. 
Number two, lifting of hands is a renewing of a covenant. When you lift your hands, you renew your covenant with God. What it says in Genesis 14. The lifting of hands is a renewing of your vow and your words. Number three, lifting of hands is an action of spiritual warfare. When you can't do anything else, try lifting your hands. Psalms 144 says, he trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. But he's talking about worship. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, it says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. Well, the lifting of hands has a spiritual action to it. And a part of that is warfare. Remember when Moses lifted his hands and he was on top of the mountain and they were fighting down in the valley with Joshua and the armies were fighting and the Bible says it's the strangest thing. Every time Moses lifted his hands, Joshua would win. And Moses got tired. He did this all day, all day, all day long. Finally, they got a rock. He sat down on a stone. He got Aaron on one side, her, H-U-R, on the other side because Moses' hands were so heavy, couldn't lift him anymore. So they held his hands up for him. And as his hands were held up, the enemy was pushed back. How? How does the invisible actions take place with the physical of lifting and then something happens on earth? It's weird. It's hard to understand. But your lifting of hands, if you're being pushed around by the devil, if you're facing the enemy and you come into church, just lift your hands and say, Lord, I am lifting my hands as an act of spiritual warfare. I've been pushed around this week and devil. Today, I'm standing on top of the mountain with God and I believe the Lord is gonna push back my darkness and do mighty things in Jesus' mighty name. You stand your position with the lifting of hands. The lifting of hands has a warfare significance to it. Number four, lifting of hands is the same as an evening sacrifice. Say, well, what's so big deal about that? This is Psalms 141. It says, let my prayer be set before you as incense. What an amazing scripture. Psalms 141. And the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Well, if you want to read about it, Exodus 29. You go there and you can read all about the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice was the one sacrifice where God says five things that he will do at the evening sacrifice. I will speak with you. I will sanctify you. I will visit you. I will come to you. I will. It starts telling you all the things God will do at the evening sacrifice. Go through your Bible and find all the people that did things at the evening sacrifice. Daniel. Go through Nehemiah. Go through different people. Why did they choose the evening sacrifice? Because it had a promise with it. Well, my promise is, when I lift hands, it's just like the evening sacrifice. Number five, lifting of hands is a sign of surrender. It's a sign of saying, I love you. I obey you, and I surrender my life to you. Sixth, lifting of hands is an act of intercession. 
It's an act of intercessory prayer. Psalm 28, my voice and my supplication when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands, well, lifting of hands toward the sanctuary with the voice of prayer. Number seven, the last one, the lifting of hands expresses an attitude of thirst. An attitude of thirst, which I've already gone into. There's a number of scriptures you can go through in the psalm, but lifting of hands is an attitude. Now, I'd like you to mark another verse in your Bible. Will you go to Psalms 63? I want you to mark three verses right now, and I want you to underline one little phrase. Would you do that if you mark in your Bible? Psalm 63 and verse 4. I want you to notice what it says. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands, and we got that. I will lift up my hand. Would you underline in your Bible, in your name? Psalms 63 and verse 4. In your name. We will lift up our hand in your name. Would you also go to Psalm 68 and mark verse 4 also? Notice what it says. Sing to God. Sing praises, underline, to his name. To his name. Psalm 68, verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the cloud, noticed, by his name. And then it says, if it says it in your translation, by his name, Yah. And rejoice before him. Why do they only translate that Hebrew word right there just with the three letters, Yah? There's a reason, and I can't tell you right now. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, and by his name. Now, I just want you to pick up this praise and name. Go to Psalms 148 and mark your Bible, verse 13. Psalms 148, verse 13 says, Let them praise, notice, the name of the Lord. Let them praise the name. Psalms 148, verse 13 of the Lord. Notice, underline, His name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and the heaven. Psalms 148, 13 Praise the name for his name. To his name, in his name, by his name. Notice the phrases I've had you just underline in those three verses. In your name, to his name, by his name, in the name, for the name. Now, Psalms 8 and verse 1. O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. How excellent is your name. One of the aspects of singing praise is singing praise to the name of God. It gives content to your praise. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. You know the verse. Just put it down. Or the story behind it, I'm sure. Exodus three fourteen. Remember, Moses is going to be the deliverer. God has met him. And Moses asked a question. He says, now... Who will I tell the people you are that's sinning me? What do I tell them? 
Moses says, what is your name? Because I need to tell the people who you are. There's a thousand gods in Egypt, and they all had names. So what Moses was asking, being in the Egyptian universities his whole life, he understood the culture, what he was faced with, and going back to that culture of many named gods, he simply said, what will I tell them when they ask me, what is his name? Who, who sent you here? And this is where the famous passage comes out where the rest of the Bible is aligned to this verse right here. Rest of the Old Testament, for sure. Exodus 3.14, where God says, tell them I am. Hmm. What? Tell them I am who I am. Now, what? He does there in a tetragrammaton, what he does there in the Hebrew is an unpronounceable four letters where he says, tell them, Yahed Vehe. Tell them that. Okay. Uh, God, come on, help me a little bit with this because what does this mean? And as you follow, and it's a teaching in itself, obviously, and is a great teaching in itself. As you follow this teaching, what God says to Moses is this, and I want you to write this down. I will be all that is necessary when the need arises. That's the idea behind this name. I will be all that is necessary as the need arises. I will be all that is necessary as the need arises. They added a couple vowels into the letter in here because it would have come out just with a simple uh, Y-H, E-H, without the vowels, it would have been unpronounceable and actually it was so sacred they wouldn't let the Hebrew people, only the priests could use it and all that went on. But they actually made it into the word Yahweh. That's where we get the word Yahweh. It actually was made into the word Jehovah so that it could be pronounced because what he received was unpronounceable, unreadable. But behind the name was the God who sent him. Yahweh, I will be what I will be. I will show you who and what I am by who and what I will be to you. Now will be all that is necessary as the need arises. When you come into worship, remember that definition. I will be all that is necessary as the need arises. Remember that God and his name one of the favorite things that I do in my prayer and in worship is I sing praises to the names, Jehovahistic, what we would call the compound names of God. Psalms 145 says, I'll extol you, O God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. This whole piece of the psalm about name, praising, blessing, name, praising, blessing, those in the Old Testament must have understood this a lot more. 
obviously those in the New Testament understood because the name of Jesus becomes so important. So would you like to take these down real quickly? Uh, I'll just give them to you like in two minutes. But here's some of the Jehovah names that you can use when you worship. Number one, Jehovah Jireh. And number two, Jehovah Rapha. Why? Because God says, I'll be all that you need and the occasion that you have the need. I'll be all that is necessary. Jehovah Jireh, Lord our provider. Most people understand that one, know that one. The Lord our provider. Then there's Jehovah Rapha. It's Jehovah Rapha. The Lord is our healer. Number three, he says, not only will I provide and heal you, but he says, I will also be, or number three, the Rapha, yeah, number three would be Nissi, and number four would be Makadeshikim. Would you like to say that one with me? Makadeshikim? Good. That's close to tongues as you'll get today. All right. He's our banner, which is our victory, and he's our sanctification. He's how we get pure and stay pure. He's our sanctifier. Next to, he's not only our healer and our banner and our sanctifier, he's our peace. And then he says, Shama, he's the God who is there. Uh, shalom. And then it should have been Shama, but it's the Lord our righteousness. Oh, well. How did that happen? That's not on my notes. Anyway. This same Jehovah names, the Lord our peace, Lord our righteousness. Turn the next two. Shama and the last one, Rhea. If you lift up these names, and if probably I didn't give you time to take down the scriptures with them. When you sing praise to God, remember that God is your peace and your healer and your sanctifier and your shepherd and he knows exactly the need and he's your provider and he's the one. Whenever I go through my prayer time, the names that I'm giving you here, I use more than any probably piece of my prayer time because any one of those I can go off on and pray and, and kind of reach into that particular truth and pull it out. The last one is singing praise to the Greatest name of all, and that's the name of Jesus. Lifting up, as the New Testament brings it all in, Emmanuel, God with us, all the names of Jehovah fulfilled in Jesus. And so we begin to lift up the name of Jesus. Lifting up that name, there's something about that name. There's something about that word. There's something about just saying Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And singing praise to Jesus. You're my hope. You're my healer. You're my forgiver. You're, oh, Jesus. I'm lifting up my praise to you because you're always there. You never leave me or forsake me. Lord, you're my provider. You're my everything. You're the Lamb of God. And you're the King of Kings. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus.